in humanity, there is this obsession with with uh, with prizes, with honors, with awards, with glory. And I really, again, trace it to almost a form of religion where you have a worshipful attitude. You have a, a hierarchy set up. And it's not that competition is bad. I think competition is, is ultimately can be very healthy, but it can also have a dark side. We are really venerating this prize above almost everything else. And the fact that it's really so subjective, it's so far strayed from what it was originally intended to do 100 plus years ago, and it's now morphed in such a way that it's affecting the way that science is perceived, not only by by the public, which is bad enough, but by how scientists themselves see it and how they view and their and their committees that give them tenure and their funding agencies uh, are guided in part by the you know by the precedents set by previous Nobel prizes, and I think that's very dangerous. Welcome to this replay edition of Into the Impossible, featuring your host, Brian Keating, being interviewed by Mika Hanks. Mika is a writer, producer, podcaster, researcher, and adventurer, and co-founder of The Debrief. He delves deep into science, technology, history, and UAP and UFO research. In this interview, Mika focuses on Professor Keating's first book, Losing the Nobel Prize, and Brian's personal Nobel stories, his outspoken criticisms of the coveted Nobel, and his ideas on how the award process could be improved. You're going to get a fast-paced introduction to the field of SETI, that's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, its history and evolution. What are the chances of finding life beyond Earth? What are the chances of discovering techno-signatures revealing alien civilizations? If you appreciate a civilized dialogue about controversial science, including research on SETI and unidentified aerial phenomenon, please keep Into the Impossible in your feeds by subscribing and following. Please help us spread our techno signature by paying it forward with a share to curious friends. Jump over to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's DR Brian Keating, and subscribe there too. There you'll find an extensive selection of episodes featuring SETI, exoplanets, and astrobiology. SETI is a particularly relevant subject in light of this week's revelation by Avi Loeb on this channel of his retrieval of what could be the first interstellar material ever recovered and publicly released. Please let us know what you think of the show in the form of a review like this one on Apple Podcasts. One of the best. Dr. Keating has a great way of extracting interesting and in-depth information from his guests. He makes the content relatable for all, no matter your background. And now, your host, Brian Keating, being interviewed by Mika Hanks. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. And Brian Keating is someone who many of our listeners will already be familiar with. He has joined us on the program in the past. He is Distinguished Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences in the Department of Physics at University of California, San Diego. And his book, Losing the Nobel Prize, which has become a personal favorite of mine, was selected as one of the best science books of the year at Science Friday, Amazon, Science News, Physics Today, Forbes, and Symmetry Magazine. Obviously, a lot of other people liked it, too. So I figured it was about time we get him back on. Dr. Keating, how are you doing? That's uh, great. Uh, it's a wonderful day, and it's always lovely to be with you, Mika. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, positive reaction 
a little negative reaction, but the negative reaction, you know, if you don't get negative reaction, it means you're not doing your job right. Uh, if people don't disagree with you, then uh, what you're saying is a little probably too bland and not effectual. So I've gotten some criticism, but that was to be expected primarily from people that either love the Nobel Prize and think it's great or people that are actually working for the Nobel Prize or hope to win it themselves. So the, the main people that I want to reach, which are young people, students, young scientists, uh, have been overwhelmingly supportive. And uh, I gave a talk up at the Bay, in the Bay Area last week for the SETI Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, uh, which is a passion of mine as well. And uh, there's a young girl who came up to me and she asked me, uh, you know, if I could sign this drawing that she made of me in my book. And it was, it was probably 12 years old. Oh and it was just uh, so touching to me. She had a NASA shirt on, and she wants to be a scientist, and that I have influence over young people, and hopefully guiding them in the direction of passion for science and technology uh, is just a great blessing and fortune that I'm able to have. Indeed, that really is something I appreciate about your work, Brian. And in addition to your advocacy as a scientist, in addition to your work as an educator, we do share that interest in SETI, and I did want to get into that subject with you a little bit, talk some about the SETI program. Many scientists, in fact, are looking at the discovery of extraterrestrial life as being an imminent discovery. They say that within just a few years, this is going to be a reality. It's going to step out of the realm of speculation and science fiction and into the real world. So I'd love to get your perspectives on this. How close are we to discovering alien life? And what is the state of the art with the science pertaining to that? So SETI, I should say for listeners who might not be as familiar and passionate as I am and you are, but uh, it's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So it's not merely the search for life. And actually, I make it even more of a distinction because I say it's a search for technology because mm -hmm. the only way we would really get evidence for for you know intelligent life is if we have evidence for technology and so for example if there was a dolphin swimming around in an ocean on uh, you know the moon titan we would never know about it unless the dolphins have created uh, some you know brand new iphone 11 or something like that <laughs> uh, whatever dolphins use to communicate uh, it certainly doesn't seem to be technologically and so we would be blind to that now that doesn't mean life doesn't exist but i think we'd all agree it's much more exciting to find a dolphin than to find a microbe although both would be revolutionarily exciting and a, and a step forward for the human species to understand we may not be the only species on this entire universe and, and certainly within our galaxy uh, and so the search for it has gone on for 50 or 60 years and actually the seti institute is really the byproduct of two great scientists. One is Jill Tarter, who was the inspiration for the character played by Jodie Foster in Carl Sagan's movie called Contact. She's a real-life person, and uh, she and uh, Frank Drake, who's a famous scientist who came up with this calculation that could be used to set the uh, uh, a limit or a number of extraterrestrial intelligent species that may exist in the universe. And so they've been going at this for 50 years now, over 50 years, hoping you know to find ways technologically to perceive the existence of an advanced life form in some other part of our of our galaxy. We know it probably can't be in our solar system. The conditions don't seem to be right anywhere else but Earth for intelligent life. Um, but actually, the search has expanded, as you asked about technology that enables it. We now believe that there's actually an interesting progression. So the movie Contact, your listeners might 
remember starts off with like radio transmissions from the 1932 uh, Olympics, I think it is, mm-hmm. broadcasting out into space. And then uh, so that was like the first mass broadcast television signal on Earth. And that's great. And it went out and now it's been, you know, 70, uh, you know, 87 years or whatever since that broadcast. But uh, at the same time, you have, you know, this notion that the way that our civilization has progressed, now we transmit almost nothing via these antennas, right? So you have almost everything via beamed, you know, fiber optics or cable TV, you know, for television. Very little is, you know, broadcast directly out into space. And so if other civilizations took the same route, you might not expect them to be seeable because the period of time in which they use the technology might have only been 50 years. And if you're not looking in the right 50-year bracket, you're not going to see them. Yeah. Um, and so then the question has come up, well, what other forms of life could be detectable? What planets have meeting possible criteria? We know there's thousands and thousands. There might be a trillion planets in our own galaxy alone, and there might be you know half a trillion galaxies in the observable universe. So I think there's a lot of, of research going into this to see, well, how would an alien communicate with us? And maybe it would be as envisioned in contact, or maybe it would be something radically different. And so the best approaches to use are most sensitive detectors and telescopes in a targeted uh, fashion to look at the most promising potential planets that might host life. Right. You know, another fascinating thing that's happening right now is the idea that we have enough technology that even if the alien life in question, the alien intelligence, even if they were not trying to communicate directly with us or search for other life, that we might still detect their techno signatures. The concept of, for instance, a Dyson sphere comes to mind here. So is it equally probable in your mind that we might detect alien life that is utilizing advanced technology, but not necessarily beaming that into the cosmos? Yeah, there's a fellow author uh, at the same publisher that I wrote losing the Nobel Prize with, Norton. His name is uh, Adam Frank. He's a professor in New York, upstate New York. He has a book called Light of the Stars in which he argues that the you know most promising signature to look for is not necessarily you know, a beam of, of any radio waves or high-energy photons or what have you, but instead just might be to look for the effects of you guessed it, greenhouse gases. Mm. So warming trend established on Earth, he claims, you know, predominantly by not uh, not sources such as radio waves or television broadcasts, but but actually from farming, the advent of farming, perhaps 10,000 years ago, um, the advent of mass amounts of, of animals used for livestock, and, and then that per- contribution towards climate change. And then uh, simply the evolution of a biosphere over time uh, that might increase the probability for detection and the biosignatures that would be present would be much more easily detected, perhaps, than the actual radio transmission because you're looking at a planetary-wide um, distribution of, of energy in the case of, of a climate change signal. So uh, depressingly uh, – you know, surprisingly, depressingly, after that calculation, he comes up with a with a calculation that really can put a constraint on how many civilizations capable of producing global warming, climate change, planetary evolution uh, could have existed in the entire history of the observable universe. 
And he comes up with a number that on the small end is like a hundred such advanced civilizations. That sounds, you know, decent. If there were, you know, a hundred civilizations in our solar system, you know, we would not never have asked the question, are we alone? We would know it as a fact. But a hundred over the 14 billion year lifetime of the universe, <laughs> if they're evenly distributed or somehow plausibly distributed, I mean, you know, hundreds of millions of years between civilizations. And it would mean that they're distributed perhaps – yeah, you know, 50 to almost 100 billion light years away from us, meaning that we could never even have causally connected with them and contacted with them and observed signals from them and transmitted signals to them. So um, it's quite improbable from that calculation, although he, he claims that's a big number. I think it's a very small number. And so the odds, you know, my opinion about detecting this within our lifetime has to be expressed as a very small number. And, and even Seth Shostak, who's the foremost... He's the chief astronomer at SETI Institute, famous author and, and um, podcaster, et cetera. He doesn't even seem to be, you know, he, he always says that this is, you know, it could happen next year. It could happen uh, a thousand uh, years from now. It could never happen. So I think, you know, we can't really put a probability on it, but we're learning a lot more about the conditions necessary for life. And seeing that they're pretty common throughout the universe uh, that we can observe, that doesn't necessarily prove that life exists, but it, it certainly proves life is could exist. We're talking with Dr. Brian Keating, a friend of the program. He's the author of the book Losing the Nobel Prize. We've had him on the, in the past, but in light of some of the news pertaining to interstellar discoveries, I wanted to get him on to talk about SETI a bit, as well as his broader work. And that brings us to the subject that we're about to touch on with him right now. And, you know, one of the things I think that we have to understand about ourselves is uh, the the ways that our culture and our society affect our mentality and the things that drive us. Again, this is fundamental to what you talk about in losing the Nobel Prize, Brian. And, you know, you had sent me this story the other day. It's a tragic story. In fact, it involves Martin Wiseman, who had been a climate economist. And the New York Times reporting his apparent suicide. I was shocked when I read the story. And they had noted the fact that after having not won the Nobel Prize himself, that his attitude and his mood had seemed to take a, a marked turn. And it's such tragic news. And you'd reached out to me and had said, you know, I never want to see this kind of thing happen again. Can we talk a bit about that? Maybe the impact that story had on you. And of course, with relation to the book you've written about this very subject and some of the negative side of what is arguably perceived as being the best prize that a scientist can achieve yeah, so you have you know very frequent examples of of people that say lose money or lose fame or don't win certain accolades throughout uh, the spheres of entertainment or in politics that suffer from depression and sometimes escalate all the way to you know actual suicide. And in this case, this uh, poor man was despondent and many and many according to many accounts in that report. Uh, in part due to his failure to win the Nobel Prize. And then as I point out in the book, you know, they don't give it again for the same discovery or the same field, et cetera. Uh, but I just wish desperately I could have met this man and told him and given him a copy of my book to show how ludicrous the aspiration to win the Nobel Prize is. It's kind of like saying, um, you know, would you have liked to win the, uh, you know, would you kill yourself over not winning the Longitude Prize? And you're like, right. What's the Longitude, that was like 400 years ago, 300 years ago. Nobody <laughs> even cares about it. And the likelihood of people caring about the Nobel Prize in, in a few decades, perhaps longer, if they continue with some of the negative trends they've had, you know, sex, uh, sex abuse scandals that have rocked the Nobel Prize 
And I talk about some of it in my book. The other scandals involving you know, dictators and, and really mass murderers and people accused of horrible things, winning the Nobel Peace Prize, arguably the most prestigious prize that is offered. You, know, you don't hear about so many of these aspects in physics. In chemistry, a Nobel Prize is won by you know, a person generally considered to be the father of chemical warfare or chemical weapons. And so you see this uh, throughout all these prizes, and then to have a person, uh, you know, venerate this prize to such an exalted level that upon not winning it, he, you know, he feels depressed. And maybe that did cause him to commit suicide. I don't know why the, they would keep mentioning if it didn't. And it's, 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 it's tragedy upon a tragedy because it really is showing the level to which the Nobel Prize is taken so seriously and so sacrosanct that it's almost, in my opinion, as I describe in the book, it's become a religion, and it's a religion that's worshipped by people who have prized, you know, these accolades and awards above almost anything else. And I, I feel truly in my heart, if I had an hour with this gentleman, at least with regard, I could, I can't speak for the other aspects of pain and mental suffering and anguish he must have been uh, afflicted with. But if I had an hour, if I could just talk to this poor, poor man. I would, I would, I could have had an impact. I hope to make him feel that at least in this aspect. Again, I can't address the other mental. I'm not a psychologist, sure. a psychiatrist, but to make him realize that this award is really, in a lot of ways, a naked emperor that people are truly bowing down to and worshiping. And again, it's set by a few hundred academicians in Sweden that determine this prize, and even the economics prize that he aspired to, apparently. Uh, it was only a recent invention, and it was uh, construed as being an ab ab abomination, essentially, towards the Nobel name by one of Nobel's grandnephews, who basically had petitioned them to remove Alfred Nobel's name from the prize. So it's no longer called the Nobel Prize in Economics, it was, and it was never uh, created by Alfred Nobel. He knew nothing about it. And so it's now known as the Swedish Central Bank Prize in memory of Alfred Nobel. And, you know, when you think about it like that, like, would you, <laughs> would you be depressed, say, over not winning the, you know, the Kansas, you know, uh, Federal Bank Reserve Prize for, you know, whatever podcasting? I just, I cannot <laughs> imagine it. And to exalt this so high, it, it just, it really depressed me a little bit too. And I feel, I feel this is such a great tragedy. And, and I just wish uh, that it could never happen again. I appreciate again, you bringing it to my attention because I've had many friends. I think we all have friends in our lives, Brian, or even, you know, we as individuals from time to time, we may, you know, battle depression or stigma because of certain subjects we have interest in. For instance, again, the search for extraterrestrial life. That's, that's a very loaded one because while I believe that in likelihood extraterrestrial life does exist somewhere or at very least at some point has existed and that life or evidence of it, maybe in the past even, could be detectable, that is a subject that when you get into the, again, the more controversial revelations by the U.S. Navy and their study of unexplained aerial phenomena, they get rather polarized on those. So to try and be a scientific educator or a proponent of science education and then also to be willing to push boundaries, it can become at times difficult because you're inevitably going to be attacked. And really, after reading your book, it helped me, and I want to thank you for that, it helped me kind of see yet again that even though the Nobel Prizes are not explicitly only awarded for science achievements, the fact that this has become the be-all, end-all for so many, and yes, as you correctly say, the New York Times article 
references that in relation to a number of factors which may have contributed to this man's decision to commit suicide. I couldn't imagine a greater tragedy when we really break this down and go, what do these what do these goals that people strive for? What do these awards really mean? And as you have pointed out, the the most important takeaway for me about your book is that how does that influence scientists specifically in terms of the tri- the goals that they aim for and the kinds of studies that they try to achieve? It could actually be a hindrance, couldn't it? I think it definitely is. And, you know, I bring up several instances in my book, including this famous study called Goldman's Dilemma, where there was a question posed to the most elite athletes uh, in the world, Olympic caliber athletes, by a physician named Robert Goldman. And and Goldman asked these athletes if they would take a drug that would guarantee them, you know, say, winning an Olympic gold medal or winning overwhelmingly victorious in their sporting endeavors. But they would also then die five years later. And he reported originally that there were at least half of the people that responded would take that drug would take that risk, that take the certainty rather, that they would die in exchange for this accolade, glory, and success. I think it's an, you know, it just shows you that in humanity, there is this obsession with, with, uh, with prizes, with honors, with awards, with glory. And I really, again, trace it to almost a form of religion where you have a worshipful attitude. You have a, a hierarchy set up. And it's not that competition is bad. I think competition is is ultimately can be very healthy, but it can also have a dark side. And we never talk about the dark side of it. And in science, the field that I'm an expert in know most about, um, you know, it, 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 compared to other subjects that I know less about, <laughs> is, uh, is, is, is we are really venerating this prize above almost everything else. And the fact that it's really so subjective it's so far strayed from what it was originally intended to do 100 plus years ago. And it's now morphed in such a way that it's affecting the way that science is perceived, not only by by the public, which is bad enough, but by how scientists themselves see it and how they view and their and their committees that give them tenure and their funding agencies uh, are guided in part by the you know by the precedents set by previous Nobel prizes, and I think that's very dangerous. Absolutely. And again, you know, since I have so many uh, Nobel Prize winning scientists that are personal friends of mine in the audience, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but in truth, I would not want to try and take away from the achievement of those who have actually been awarded the prize. It is, however, my intention, and I think yours in the book, to illustrate that this should not be the thing that drives people. And this should not be the thing that inspires people to pursue certain avenues of science. Because again, as you outline in the book... And for those who might be interested in reading it, again, that book is titled Losing the Nobel Prize by Brian G. Keating. But one of the key elements that you illustrate is how only certain areas of science tend to fall into those categories most likely to receive awards. But there are so many others that wouldn't be on the Nobel radar, so to speak, which are so fundamentally important to not only making life better on this planet right now or perhaps studying other life and the potential for its existence elsewhere, uh, or even, you know, ensuring help to ensure the future of humanity as we know it. I mean, many of these kinds of existential concerns, when we get into the nuances and the and the areas of science that can affect all these things, you simply don't see all of them qualifying for what would be that landmark Nobel achievement. And that, too, is concerning because 
I worry that many scientists, many gifted professionals will not pursue those areas if they do not feel that there will be the potential for that payoff in the end. Yeah, it's a very good point. It's a very complicated question to unpack. But I'll say, you know, my book is really a memoir of what it's like to aspire to do great science, to observe something that's not been observable before, and really to also, as I candidly admit, to win this this gilded medallion, because as it is currently, or when I began, it the writing of this book and even my scientific career, you know, began almost under the shadow of the Nobel Prize for the discovery of gravitational waves emanating from a pair of pulsars in a distant part of our galaxy. Uh, and this this uh, fascinated me that this person who had won the Nobel Prize that year was the same age as me when he discovered this finding that would later lead to his Nobel Prize. Namely, he was you know, 21 or 22 years old when he started to make these discoveries. And I thought, well, maybe I can do that too. And then in my department was a Nobel laureate, Leon Cooper. And later there'd be another Nobel laureate there. And and just the the fawning, the attention, the the pride that Brown took in and having these eminent scientists there. And again, you're absolutely right. I don't take anything away from the winners. They don't choose themselves. In fact, right. I was I was asked to nominate the winners of the Nobel Prize the, the year after. I basically had to retract the discovery that could I remember. have been <laughs> that nomination. You know, which they asked me to keep strictly confidential. So I ask your listeners not to not to mention this to anybody. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, even though it's in my book, uh, but and nevertheless, <laughs> the the um, the award that that ended up going out that to me was uh, was almost, you know, uh, uh, sort of a humiliation, and but it was also a chance to work on my own humility yeah. because I realized I had aspired to this so much and that I wouldn't win it. Uh, and yet they were still asking me for my advice as to who should win it. And I started to think uh, amidst all this, I looked at one of the rules and regulations that they asked me to abide by. And, and, the, and the one that they, you know, very prominently displayed was you can't nominate yourself. So, you know, ultimately, you know that the person who wins it, you know, it wasn't some self-dealing. That doesn't mean that their PhD advisor or their their former boss or their former students can't nominate them. That happens all the time. And you see rich family trees of Nobel laureates, uh, so to speak. But nevertheless, they're, uh, they pretty much almost always get it right. The problem is who they leave out. So they get, uh, they get uh, some people that are necessary, for example, to receive the award, but they don't get all the ones that were sufficient to make the award possible. And for that reason, I predict the Nobel's days are numbered because science is not done by three people anymore. It's my team of the Simons Observatory, which I'm the leader of, uh, is the 260 brightest people on the planet. And I say candidly in the book, now I, I am explicitly saying right now that I should not win the Nobel Prize. and We should not win the Nobel Prize if we're successful, meaning you know, that, that we're looking for something and that one or two or three people are not adequate for this discovery to be made. And, and I think that's really true. And I, I also say, you know, if they want to see if I'm sincere, they should offer me the Nobel Prize. And if I don't turn it down, then I'm a hypocrite. Yeah, it's a very noble thing of you to say. <laughs> Brian, <laughs> I, I do want to actually get some updates about what's happening there at the observatory. But first, I, I have to ask you this, because we have talked in the past, and we even mentioned it briefly earlier today, that you've gotten some pushback from colleagues. Uh, you know, there is such a thing as the Sagan effect, where, uh, and in fact, there's a great blog about this at my uh, friend Dr. One Pagan's website. Um, if you go online, search for One, like the word one, uh, Pagan, and he writes about the Sagan effect. This is, of course, in reference to 
Carl Sagan and what happens when science educators get out there and they are promoting science and education to the public. Sagan really saw a lot of pushback because for some reason there appeared to be this perceived diminishing of his efficacy as a scientist by virtue of being a popular communicator on this subject. And many would actually just chalk it up to being professional jealousy when they see a person who has published a book or they go on television and they are promoting broader science awareness rather than simply publishing papers. Now, you have done a lot of both. Do you feel that this sort of an idea, a Sagan effect, could be in any, in any way associated with some of the pushback you've received? Yeah, you know, I love talking to you because you ask me questions that no one's asked me in the two years I've been <laughs> But uh, you're absolutely right. And it is uh, very perceptive to note that. So I have written probably close to two, co-written uh, close to 200 scientific papers. Mm -hmm. um, and these papers have been cited by other um, scientific, scientists and, and collaborations thousands and thousands of times, meaning that they've read my work and said that their, my work in some small way or maybe a large way contributed to the particular branch of research that they're working on. That's how science is done. No one does science by his or herself. We're all standing on the shoulders of the giants that preceded us. And we all have an obligation to teach those that come after us. And part of the currency of science is your so-called citation count. So don't think that you know only podcasters you know worry about counting down Loads and things like that for scientists are obsessed with this. In fact, we only we not only have statistics, we have statistics of statistics. So in other words, we have not only how many people have cited a particular paper, but then we say of those papers that have been cited, how many have been cited a certain number of times and so on and so forth. And you can make statistics of statistics of statistics. It can really drive you nuts. And, and of course, you know, if scientists can do this, uh, they're going to do and every conceivable form of, of analysis. How many papers have been read by 10 people before the scientists turned 30 years old? There's a statistic for that. You know, Are you not, kidding? Oh, I'm not joking. And, and, oh. and your, your ability to get promotions depends on some of these statistics as a professor in a research university like UC San Diego or any of the other top universities in the world. And so what I find so fascinating is that for all those citations, you know, close to 10,000 citations of my papers, and I'm very gratified for each and every one because it meant somebody had to sit through and read through the, you know, it could be a 30-page paper, which could take, you know, weeks to get through and go through peer review and get, and get uh, validated, et cetera, et cetera, um, that they took the time for that. In contradistinction, you know, my book's been read, you know, 20,000 people and, and all around the world and not scientists alone. And it's been read by scientists. Some of the most eminent scientists in the world not only read my book, but endorsed it. Sir Roger Penrose, Martin, Lord Martin Rees, Brian Greene. I mean, these wow. are the most phenomenal scientists in the world. And they read and they sat down with my ideas. And some of them gave me the highest compliment that scientists can give me which is that I learned something from you. And these uh, are people that created my field. They're <laughs> telling me that they learned something from little old me, this kid who, you know, didn't have any special advantages, you know, grew up relatively poor and had, you know, low access to a very small public school in New York. And still, I, I went on through the help of my wonderful mentors in both uh, the scientific pursuit and in writing. I've had wonderful mentors in writing. Uh, Katie Fries, Lisa Randall, Brian Greene, Martin Rees, all these wonderful, it just blows me away. Uh, and so you're right, uh, it's a question of impact. I, I don't think that, you know, the people that hate, you know, are gonna hate me anyway. Uh, I think some people come off negatively. 
uh, in the book. And, and, you know, I tried to keep it as honest as possible. And it is as completely honest and thoroughly researched as could be. But it's inevitable people will, will kind of have negative associations with it. Uh, some people, though, pay me the highest compliment. I told you what scientists have said uh, that just warmed me so, so much. Uh, but then I've had non-scientists tell me that this book, you know, changed their life and that influenced how they handle things in business or how they uh, teach things to their daughters. And it's just those kinds of things uh, I would never get from a scientific paper. I mean, very few scientific papers can be said to change somebody's life in the, in the lay people, uh, in a lay person's life. Yeah. Although I wish that they could. And I think it's important because you're outlining the multifaceted element here and the importance of science educators. A person who writes a popular science book reaches so many more people than that paper will. But then again, you might call the scientific peer review publication process the gold standard of science. This is how we do the best work that we can. And it is no man as an island. I mean, this has to be a mutual accumulative effort. Now, that reminds me of something else I'd like to ask you about, Brian, because uh, a number of years ago, the editor of the Lancet Journal had written an article talking about how much of what his own journal published, he felt, was borderline pseudoscientific in the sense that he thought that the peer review process at times had been corrupted by a sort of buddy system in science where some scientists, this doesn't always happen, but some yeah. scientists would take for granted discoveries made by their peers without actually properly reviewing the data because, well, we know this person's work and therefore we assume it is likely to be you know, complete and accurate. That may not always be the case, as the editor had complained in an actual journal entry that he himself wrote, which calls into question a number of issues to some of the same problems perhaps that we see with regard to the Nobel system, would you say that those apply to the scientific process and specifically to peer review itself? Yeah, I do. I think that there's this perception that peer review is some sort of panacea that, um, you know, by, by employing it, that sort of guards against any uh, potential, you know, uh, detrimental uh, aspect of research. For example, a lot of uh, large institutions like NASA will not have a press conference on some new finding of an exoplanet or life on uh, discovered in a meteorite uh, has happened, unless those results are peer reviewed and accepted for publication in a in a journal. And it could be a very prestigious journal, or it could be you know, an ordinary, more less impactful, as we say, journal. Mm -hmm. But uh, but there's plenty of examples where that's happened and the peer review has taken place. And indeed, the results had to be retracted. And I always point out, you know, the results always appear on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, and then the retraction, if they ever appear, is always on page, you know, B32, uh, you know, some months or years later. And I think that's actually a significant lacuna and a failure of scientists that we basically don't uh, handle our flaws in public. And so the public is left either with a miss apprehension of that science was reported as always correct, or they're left with the impression that scientists never make mistakes. And neither one of which is true, uh, because scientists are human beings. And right. as long as human beings do science, we are going to make mistakes. And so I think we should, you know, reserve some funding and some sense for our grants to deal with these ethical issues in science and present our, you know, our true exposure to how science is actually done. Uh, so it's for our benefit, ultimately, that we are perceived as 
engaging in a human endeavor. And part of the reason I think people think of science as so daunting is because they see that they, they believe that scientists never make mistakes. And because of that, uh, they, uh, they are left with this, again, this misconception that we are not like other people. And if they don't feel like they are incapable of making mistakes, then they feel like they can't be scientists. So we probably do ourselves a disservice. We drive people away from science that could otherwise be a part of it because of this air of invincibility. Yeah, I am so glad you're brave enough to say things like that. And it's very important, I think, in the broader scientific dialogue. But, you know, talking about science, uh, what's going on right now? What, what have you got going on there at the Simons Observatory? Let's get an update about that. So the Simons Observatory is perhaps the most ambitious cosmological telescope ever ever designed. It's actually a series of an array of four telescopes that work independently of each other to look at the sky as perceived by this radio or microwave emission that comes to us in all directions called the cosmic microwave background radiation. This signal is the leftover thermal imprint of the formation of the very first elements in the universe 13 billion 800 million years ago and because of that it's the oldest light in the universe so it travels through all of space and time and in particular it may encode within it the properties of what makes our universe tick what is our universe made of how long has our universe existed for and how long may it continue to exist for the most interesting question of all in my opinion in cosmology is what happened on the Tuesday before the Big Bang. <laughs> In other mm. words, what was preceding our universe? How does time progress from a non-being of time, from the non-existence of time, and then time suddenly springing into existence? How could that be possible? We are attempting to understand that. And along the way, to glean insights into the very deepest inner workings of the universe, how the universe is built, what is it comprised of, what are the particles, forces, and fields that hold our universe together and are blowing it apart simultaneously. And so to me, it's the most fascinating thing to do and to have the ability to work with 260 of the brightest minds on all seven continents uh, is just such a delight and a treasure for me that – it's one thing to do what you love, and it's another thing to be able to do what you love with people you love. And that's the way I feel, uh, you know, just so engaged and, and so passionate about this science. So people are interested, you can look us up at simonsobservatory.org, or we have a YouTube channel, Simons Observatory, in addition to all the stuff I usually post on social media, etc. Yeah, and I know it's not out yet, but I did hear that there is a paperback edition of your book coming out later this month. Uh, yeah. Where can people find this book? Yeah, so it's available. It should be available pretty much in every bookstore. It goes on sale officially on the 24th of September, 2019. So uh, by the time this airs, it should be available uh, either for actual order or, or pre-order. And uh, I urge people to you know sign up for my mailing list because I do a lot of giveaways, a lot of swag. I give away uh, bookmarks with uh, gold-plated uh, images of Alfred Nobel on them, and I give away meteorites and sometimes even a, a lunar sample or two that I've collected in all my uh, expeditions all over the uh, all over the planet. So um, it's a, it's a book again that's not really. A book about the Nobel Prize per se. It's more about how the Nobel Prize loomed over me and caused me to reevaluate not only what does it mean to be a scientist, but also what it means to leave uh, a legacy. Because Alfred Nobel endowed the most famous will in history, 
uh, and in so doing created the Nobel Prize. And he died childless and without a spouse. And this legacy is all that he left. And how it got distorted is important. And I and I do describe that in three of the thirteen chapters. But the rest are really about the legacy that I urge everybody to do. I, I say, you know, at one point, you know, write your will. Write your ethical will. What do you want people to know about you? What gifts of the of the mind and the spirit do you want to give? Not just your monetary wealth, but what about your intellectual wealth? Do you want to go and give on? So I say, write that down a year before you die. That's what Alfred Nobel did. So you don't know when you're going to die. Uh, so write it down today. Absolutely. And it's a very personal reflection that you offer in your book. I highly recommend it. Losing the Nobel Prize. We might have to get you back on at some point for some more SETI updates. And I really appreciate you taking time to join us on this edition of the Micah Hanks program. Thanks again, Brian. Let's have you back. Uh, I would love to. Mitch, it's always such a treat to be on with you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch, inspired and informed by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at briankeating.com slash list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you an artifact older than the Earth, forged in the fire of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us reach 150,000 subscribers on YouTube and putting us into the top 1% of science podcasts. Please keep it growing by subscribing and sharing with friends. We love reading your reviews and suggestions. Follow Professor Keating on Twitter at drbriankeating, that's Dr. Brian Keating, and remember to always be curious. Curious.